My name is Martin Schiller. I was born in Poland in a town called Tarnobrzeg. I was born in 1933. However, all records show that I was born in 1934. One of the things that happened during the war, particularly in labor camps, was when you gave your age too low, then you weren't productive enough. It was not worth feeding you because we couldn't produce. So you always made yourself older. We played so much with our ages during the war that we literally lost track. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Martin Schiller was from Tarnobrzeg, a small town in southern Poland. Before World War II, the majority of the population was Jewish, but few survived the war. More than 60 members of Martin's family perished. It's now January 3rd, 1986, and Martin Schiller is sharing his memories with interviewers Susan Millen and Ellen Susserman in a TV studio in New Haven, Connecticut. Martin is 52 years old. He's heavyset, mostly bald, with piercing blue-gray eyes. He's wearing a navy blue suit and gestures with his right hand as he speaks. Martin remembers when war first came to Tarnobzhek. It was 1939, and Germany had just invaded Poland. Martin was six years old. I remember the war coming to our town with a very severe air raid. The whole city was just an inferno, and we all ran for our lives. We crossed a river called the Vistla, and certain things you, you can remember. And one of the things I remember is we were crossing on a little boat. We just looked at a wall of fire in, in the back of us. Do you remember what life was like before the war? Yes. I had just begun kindergarten. It was uh, this small town type of life where we had our own circle of friends. We had a very happy home. Living in our home was my mother, my brother, I, my father, and one set of grandparents. But in the same town, there were many, many more. We were a very religious family, so holidays were always wonderful because family got together. I remember the Purim plays. We were always involved in it. And I was particularly a happy child, my mother keeps telling me, But it all came to an abrupt halt immediately. It was around November 42 that we went into a labor camp. As soon as we got into the camp, I knew we were in trouble. Anybody that didn't get off the truck fast enough was hit over the head with a whip, kicked. My father, my brother, and I were taken in one 
direction, my mother was immediately put into another camp. They put us into a, a barrack that must have held three, four hundred people. And there were layers of beds made out of uh, wood, and all you had was straw. We were given this area to sleep in, which was the three of us. The width of that bed was probably the width of this couch. What did you think when your mother was taken to another camp? I was traumatic, sure. I was particularly attached to my mother, so it was devastating, I would say. Well, how old was I then? Eight years, eight and a half years old. But uh, interestingly enough, there was a sudden instinct of survival that, quite frankly, I didn't dwell on it. I attribute my survival to this instinct mm -hmm. because I saw children just falling by the wayside, people dying. As a matter of fact, I trained myself to be very brutal, very cold, and, and uh, oftentimes I, I, uh, I have uh, some... I guess I can't ask them to turn this off, can I? If you like. No, no, keep it running. It should be documented. I sometimes think I was made too inhuman mm -hmm. because I didn't care about anybody else. And uh, that was the very early lesson I learned, that when you were given your piece of bread, you hide it. And if a man is begging you for peace, I did not give it up. It was within a matter of months my father took ill, and he could not go to work. And generally, the word was, you've got to go to work, because if they find you in there. They had a sport. If someone became sick, and he said, I'm all right, just I want to rest one day, they'd say, well, okay, see if you can run a straight line. And they told him to run in a straight line, but they were firing bullets on either side of that line so that if they couldn't hold the line, and that's what happened with my father. I just went on. My brother and I just, we clung to each other. Did you work together in the same camp? Not, no. He worked in one area. I worked in another. I was put on a uh, machine that made uh, bullets, shells. As a matter of fact, I attribute my survival to the fact that I was able to hustle and in, to overcompensate because they would come and inspect and always say, what is this child doing here? So before long, I was literally running four machines by myself where most people were running single machines, only to prove, see, that I am worth it. Uh, I became what they called a model uh, prisoner, and mine was a stop on inspections to show the Germans, look at what a tremendous producer he is. Well, I began feeling guilty because everybody tried to do something to hurt the German war cause. Now, a shell is held inside the rifle. But if you make the cut that holds the shell, 
too shallow. When you fire it, it jams the gun. So one of my practices to sabotage was to adjust the cut whenever I thought they weren't going to check so that it would jam the rifles. Now the Germans obviously recognized that sabotage would go on. So they would come around periodically and check. One day I must have piled up boxes and boxes of these poorly made shells. And I picked up my head and I saw an inspector coming. And I immediately adjusted it. And there must have been thousands and thousands of shells in there. And by the time he got to me, maybe I spit out 20, 30 that were good. I was lucky he picked up one that was good. Do you remember how you felt? Oh, the fear was unbelievable. I thought I had had it. I don't think there was ever a week that went by when you didn't feel this may be it. It was one of those situations that you always kept looking over your shoulder. You always had to think 10 steps ahead. You always had to plan, what if, what if? I can remember one time, my mother and my brother and about 12, 14 other people were being taken into the woods. That was common, to be shot. Uh, someone came running to me and told me. And I ran over to this guy who I thought was my best pull. Because I was such a good worker, you do get a little pull, no matter how bad they are. They were already shooting two or three people. See, what they would do is one at a time. And I began pleading and begging him. The only thing I've got left in this world is my mother and my brother. Please help save them. Oh, I remember begging. He yelled out a command, halt, halt. And they stopped. And he said to me, which ones are yours? And I pointed to them. Just pulled them out of the line. They went back to work and that was it. Uh, there was a period of time that I walked around, I would say that was the first year. I just kept asking why? And I couldn't get the answer. I remember I walked by uh, a spot and uh, a guard hit me very hard over the head. After I recovered, because uh, he did uh, put me into a sort of semi-conscious state for a few minutes, I turned around and said, he doesn't know me. I wasn't even thinking of the fact that I was a child. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. 
Why does he have such a hatred for me? Those things used to gnaw at me. Would you like to go back and talk about the Day of Liberation? Do you remember that oh, day? Yes, I remember <laughs> Okay. I remember it very distinctly. It was April the 11th, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I remember it as clear as a bell. Uh, this was in Buchenwald. I remember the Americans coming in. When the war ended, it was just my brother and I. And here we were, liberated. Didn't know what to do with ourselves. Where was your mother? She time? was... All we knew was that she was in a place called Leipzig. We didn't know whether she was alive. Yeah. But we knew we had to head in that direction. Just by yourselves? Just by ourselves. Never having traveled. Remember, we went into the camp at eight. I was eight. My brother was nine. We jumped on a, on a truck. And because everything was bombed out, rails were down, bridges were down, it was a pretty torturous trip. Every time we came to a city, uh, people that got out of camps would give their names, have you heard of so-and-so, you'd look at lists and so on, you'd always leave your name. We had been told that they were killed, everyone was killed, but we didn't accept it. We ended up in a town that someone told us she was in. And we stepped off the train. It was just fresh after a rain. And there's a lady who's walking with a kid in a, in a carriage. And she says to us, are you by any chance the Schiller children? It was just unbelievable. We said, yes. She said, I'll take you to your mother. And that was it. That meeting, we couldn't, we couldn't break apart. We just held on, it was in a hallway that was six stories. And I, all, I can remember people coming out of the doors and watching us and we just couldn't let go, holding on and crying. We went back to Poland, but when we were in Poland, we were there no more than a week or two and there was a pogrom. Oh, God. After liberation. after liberation, after the war, we went back. We didn't even want to make lay claim to anything. We just wanted to look for our families. We were in Krakow. In that two-week period we were there, there were two programs. It was so shattering. Here I'm coming back from what I call hell, and I remember saying to myself, you know, when we get back to Poland, they're going to feel sorry for us. They'll open the doors for us. And we arrive in Krakow and we're waiting in one of those holding areas for the DPs. And they're attacking with non-guns, knives. It was terrible. The Russians were protecting us. After things settled down, it quieted down and they're standing there with the machine guns. Two other Russians walked by and one said to the two that were walking by, we're hollering up to one of them, what are you doing up there? He says, oh, I got duty, I've got to watch these kikes. That jolt, it was at that time that I was convinced Israel, at that time was Palestine. 
after the two pogroms plus this, the utter helplessness, the, the feeling of despair. Is there any place that I don't have to fear? Is there any place that I can feel comfortable? We got out of... I remember my mother went through the whole war with her wedding band. I don't know how she did it. We got to the Polish border. They don't want to let us out. Poland not good enough for you? And my mother began arguing. And he says, I'll let you through if you give me the ring. That was the parting shot with Poland. Now I've got thrown off the track, so I don't remember what I was leading up to. You were talking about going to Israel looking for your family. We arrived in the United States, not in Israel, Palestine then, simply because we had a couple of uncles, three uncles, who were able to find us in the DP camps and were able to send us visas to come to the United States. When we arrived, they said, we're going to send you to yeshiva. And I didn't want any part of yeshiva. I mean, I didn't believe. I, I was on the opposite end. I was hateful. But they reasoned with us. My uncle said, look, you can't speak a word of English. You're third, going on 13. You'll never be able to make it in a regular public school. If we put you into yeshiva, at least you'll be able to communicate with people. There is an affinity between Jews. They'll be able to understand and give you a little more room, more time. And they said, if you don't want the religion, throw it away. Play the game. So we agreed. One of the things I remember as a child coming out, I felt I had to tell the world what was happening. So I remember the first few months in the yeshiva, I would speak freely. I would tell the kids everything. I would tell my rabbi what happened and so on. Then one day we went out on recess and one of the kids got a hold of me. We were all in a circle and he said, why don't you tell one of your bullshit stories? And from that day on, this was 1946, 47, I did not say a word, I would say till about uh, five, seven years ago. Mm. I, I used to say after the war, thank God it didn't affect me. Mm. But oh my God, it, it made its mark on me. Schiller's children started asking him questions, did he begin to talk about what had happened to him during the war? In 2004, at his son's urging, Martin returned to Poland for the first time. 
Despite his reluctance to go, he says that in some ways it was a catharsis. However, he says, the nightmares and flashbacks have never entirely fallen away. Out of Martin's entire extended family in Poland, only he, his brother, mother, and a cousin survived the Holocaust. Now, in his mid-80s, Martin lives with his wife in Delray Beach, Florida. They've been married for six decades and have three children and five grandchildren. To learn more about Martin Schiller, please visit thosewhowerethere.org. That's where you'll find additional background information and photographs, as well as a link to Martin's autobiography and his son's documentary about their trip to Poland. To hear more from those who were there, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewhowerethere.org. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director, Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening.